Hi, this is Ty France, and you're listening to the Friars on the Farm podcast. Out in the West Texas, down in El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Welcome to Friars on the Farm podcast. I'm Donovan, and coming to me via Skype, the hard-to-find Troy. <laughs> I'm hard to track down sometimes, but holy cow, I don't know if my heart can take much more of this. We got, what, 11, 12 more games against the Dodgers? Holy cow. It was insane. This last week and a half went from from just absolute pain to absolute, oh my God, like it was, I I almost tweeted, I almost ended up on Ben and Woods dipshit tweets so many times with just (laughs) my, oh my, I almost, I almost tweeted we were going to be two games under 500 by the end of the weekend. God, oh, oh man, no. that would have been bad. No, I, you can't do that. I'm a passionate fan. Like I, I live and die. Like I know, and I even, uh, you know, last night's game, they started losing seven to one. You know, in my household, we couldn't watch that game anymore, and so I, I paid attention to it during my, uh, you know, while we watched our stories, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I watched it on my phone on the computer, and I kept giving her little updates, and Lydia would say, "No, shut up, shut up, I don't." Then after a while, it got really close. She was like, okay, if it's something good happens, then you can tell me. You know, we're used to so many years of the Padres falling behind by two runs and feeling like it's over. That's it. So those days are, are gone. Now we can go up against the best teams in the league and trail by a bunch and have a chance to come back. But before we get to all that, uh, today we're going to talk about the Dodgers series. Yeah. We're going to talk about some roster moves, and then we're going to kick it to an interview with Brad Taylor, the senior VP and general manager of the El Paso Chihuahuas. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really fun interview. He uh, he was really cool. It's good to talk to. Uh, get good to connect with the guys from El Paso. Uh, of course. Let's get back to the game. Like, uh, yeah. Well, all three games, it's, all four it's, games. <laughs> Like I, I, it's an emotional hangover. Like I haven't drank, had a drink, in 19 years, and I felt so emotionally hungover this morning that I've ever felt in my whole life. Not only that, do we stayed up late watching the replay of the game, but just I couldn't take it. And I'm like, I'm not one of those even keel guys. If you guys can figure it out by now, like I, I need to know that we're going to be okay, and I need to know that we're going to win. Um, and it's just, it's going, it, it, it just, I go crazy. <laughs> well, you got to control yourself. Get a hold I, of yourself, man. Smack. I can't. I can't. Well, you know, you said it a second ago. Last year, we would be down by two or three runs, and it was like, okay, we can. that's easy. We can get that back. This year, in the start of the season, it kind of didn't seem that way. We would go down a couple runs, and only a few times did we come back to win. And so, you know, you get a six-run deficit. Even that early in the game, you're like, God, with the pitching they have and the team they have, it's not going to, you know, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, but, you know, this team can hit and they can run the bases. I saw somebody tweeted out something about how the Padres run the bases more aggressively than anybody else, and that helps create these runs. And so like that, Tatis scored, he stole third base, and that's what allowed him to score on Hosmer's sacrifice fly. So, and it's not just Tatis, it's everybody. Manny Machado stealing bases. You've got guys trying to take the extra base. We uh, actually lead the league in stolen bases with, I think, 25 or so. Right. Yeah. Right. And you, there's a bunch of speed. You got Will Myers and Jorge Mateo. And, I mean, it's little things like busting down the first baseline to beat out a double play. Yeah. And I, there were a couple of those yesterday where it looks like a double play ball. And then the bug is to first base. And there's Jorge Mateo five steps past the first baseman. Yeah. It's like that keeps the inning alive. 
That keeps the inning alive. It does. And it happened last night at the end of the game. And, and that, you know, but let's let's take our collective <sighs> sigh of relief and just say uh-huh. Fernando Tatis is back. Oh, my gosh. And he is back with a vengeance. I mean, I, I, I as a Padre fan, to watch him homer twice off Clayton Kershaw was enough. Like, okay. We could lose the game. I don't care. He hit two bombs off Kershaw, who's never done that. I don't think he's ever that's ever happened before in his career. And then to come, he's back, probably let two bombs at some point. But holy cow! I yeah. mean, it's just each one of those seemed to change the momentum of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next day, and the next day, and here's everyone hates to hate on Trevor Bauer. I don't like the person. I love the villain. I love the baseball villain. I love that he's a jerk on. You know, and on social media, kind of calls people out. You know, the other, the misogynistic stuff, the the political kind of stuff, like I can care less about. But having a baseball villain and him be on the team that we want to beat the most, hell yeah, give it to me. I'm so glad he didn't sign with the Padres. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it, I, if he was playing for the Padres, I'd be cheering for him and rooting for the team on the front, not the name on the back. But oh my gosh. So what do you think about the whole sign stealing air quotes thing that, that Trevor Bauer kind of sparked up? Well, some kid put it on Twitter and he quote tweeted it uh, without really looking that deep into it. And if you later yes. on, John Boy from John Boy Media, he, uh, he broke it down and he didn't. And then last night, you know, on the fly, Ken Rosenthal comes out with a piece with with um, interviews with three different major league catchers, and they're like, "It's it's if he's stealing signs, it's on the catcher." Right, and it was pretty apparent that he wasn't stealing signs. John Boy did a good job of of making that clear that the the catcher's fingers were balled up into a fist by the time Tatis looked back. What Tatis was probably doing was looking for the catcher's location. Was he starting to shift away? to know if the pitch is going outside. And I think it's funny that all these Dodgers fans and even some national writers, Bill Plaschke, are you out there? uh, That they're, they're calling him out for it. And then there's a clip of Cody Bellinger and you see him giving the kind of side eye back there to the catcher. Like, Oh, are you sliding away? Cause then I'll go away. (laughs) He looks like he has Tourette's doing so much. He's like, is that a tick? Or are they still trying to steal signs? No, it was clear. And so, (laughs) So the way I'm I'm understanding it, if you're actually trying to look at the catcher's fingers and steal the signs, that is a no-no. That will get you drilled. But if you're simply looking for where the catcher's placing his weight, if it, is he moving early, that's kind of frowned upon, but it's above board. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's very fair to say. And you can't like I, I don't I don't know if you know sneaking back to take a look works. I don't know if it's so you know the signs are done kind of so much late and early in the at bat that he you know you're starting to dig in you're getting ready okay signs are getting done while you're still kind of like just getting your feeling and then by the time those signs are done you have about a half second to maybe maybe two or maybe two seconds before the pitch is thrown and you need to be ready right you know so looking back and doing that I, I don't know and and if you're a catcher and you're if you're making your presence known if you're shifting outside, if you're shifting inside, like that's once again, that's on the catcher. As a as a major league catcher, you have to be silent. All those moves have to be done when the attention is away. You know, the batter's attention is on the pitcher, not uh, you know, not necessarily on the catcher. So I don't I don't see it. Right. And in that article that uh, Rosenthal posted, I think Dennis Lynn helped put it together. Uh, he talked to Eric Kratz, uh, Chris Ionetta, and I can't remember who the third guy was, but they all kind of agreed that you need to be smart back there. You need to know who's trying to look. And if you think somebody's peeking, then maybe you you decoy one way and move in the other. And you'll see that 
because you watch the catcher back there and sometimes they'll kind of s- slide one way and then slide the other because they think somebody might be looking, especially when there's a runner on second base, because that's another thing that the runner on second, you might see a little subtle hand movement right. or maybe they'll they'll pick a foot up when the guy's moving inside, it's stuff like that. And it's it's just it's a part of the game. Yeah, it's it's the uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's the craft. Schoolcraft, well, you know, spycraft, you know, it's the craft of the... <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's so you need craft. to be smart. I mean, it's like it's like having all these different signs and all of that. You just, you need you need to be a step ahead. It, it, there's a chess game within the game of baseball. That's one of the things I enjoy so much about it. You know, so then yesterday, Taddy, oh, okay, maybe those are just, well, four homers were a fluke. You know, maybe, you know, maybe he was tipping his pitches. Maybe it was whatever. But Dustin Mayer right. with his 98 two-seamer, I mean, I, I, God, God, that guy's really good. Like, I... And I heard it on Ben and Woods this morning, but I, I I agree. Like he's the most feared pitcher in that whole rotation. Kershaw can be off, even Bauer can be off a little bit, but you can't touch that two seamer. And for for Taddy to go straight dead center against him was just all right. You, you think I'm stealing signs? Here we go again. I I don't know how you do that. How you see a pitch coming in and you just expect that it's going to move six inches towards yeah. your kneecaps yeah. and be able to put a barrel on it. I I I don't know how. So he's That's the first, unreal. So he's the first shortstop to hit multiple home runs uh, ever at Dodger Stadium. No Dodger, right. no Dodger shortstop has hit multiple home runs in multiple days. Uh, and the two other. So here's the, here's the stat cast that came out. He's a six player with multi HR games off former Cy Young winners twice in one season, and he's the first to do it in back to back games. The other players with two in one season. Felipe Alou, 1966, off Law and Koufax. Gorman Thomas, 1980, Gorman who? Off Palmer and Guidry. Robin Yout. Don't say Gorman who. Gorman Thomas was a really good player for a long time. Yeah, I was very young at 1980. <laughs> I was <laughs> 10 years old. Anyway, I was Yout. an infant in 1980, so I should, you know, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, Robin Yout hit 1982 off Perry and Palmer. Ken Griffey Jr., 1997, off Conan Clemens. And Manny Machado, 2018, off Sabathia and Kluber. No one has ever done so three times in a season. Well, now we got like another 150 games where Tatis can try to do that. God, you know, it's just, it's, it's good <laughs> to see that in all the talk when he was struggling, when he came back with the two-handed swing, that's the big thing is the two-handed swing. He, you know, that home run off May, I think was outside and he hit it, you know, with the one hand, but that was, you know, reaching with extension. So anything that's mm-hmm. in, he's getting his two hands through and it swings almost, that follow through almost looks like, um, God, the Brewers. Uh, everyone hates that. Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun. That whole yeah, that whole stiff uh, upper arm. Well, so I thought back to when he was playing for the Estrellas Orientales right before he made his debut, and he had that off season where he just went off in the Dominican League. And there's that clip of him hitting the walk off home run and flipping his bat to the moon. Well, it's a two handed swing, and he was hitting the slider on the outside part of the plate. Yeah. So it's. It's been in his bag before, and it's just like people talk about him sliding head first, and now he's sliding feet first. He did a pop-up slide the other day. Yeah. He's done that before. He he has the tools. It's not like he has to figure something out that's brand new to him. It's just not how he's been doing it for the last year or so. Yeah, and he's playing a little bit smarter. Still needs to clean up the defense a little bit, and that'll come. But right, as long as he keeps yeah, the, <laughs> Tingler's been talking about how the game needs to slow down a little bit for him, and I, we saw that last year that all of a sudden he had this internal clock and and he wasn't rushing things, and now kind of it's that's what it sounds like. I mean, I'm obviously I'm I'm just some you know 
joker in front of a microphone. I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, I, I understand that that's how it goes. I, when the ball's coming at you that fast, you, uh, I, I don't want to say panic, but there's that, that you feel like you have to do everything as fast as you can to right. get the runner out. Right. Because so being able to at the place, right. So judging when to attack, you know, try to come in on a ball or when to stay back and play it off a hop. Uh, Cause it's just yesterday. He had a couple that hit him in the chest and it's like a good shortstop doesn't wind up taking balls off the chest. Right. So something's up, but they've got the right coaches and everybody, everything to work about. I think he's going to get there. Absolutely. And he's also slowing it down at the plate for sure. For sure. Uh, so let's move on uh, to Capito, you know, and here's the thing about, you know, to Capito, uh, Luis Camposano, uh, you know, and Ryan Weathers being on, on the opening day roster, they all earned it. Like, like to Capito earned it. There were some injuries also with Campy. He earned it. He just didn't get it because Nola got his broken finger. He, you know, he wouldn't have made the team without it, but certainly he earned his, uh, earned his right for the opening day starters. So to Capito Marcano was sent down to the alternate site, um, which is fine. He, he got his cup of coffee. He got to see what it takes to stay there. Let's see him get into double A, hit some double A, maybe make it triple A, and maybe show up in a September call-up. Oh, I think we'll see him before that. It's it's just a matter of when when there's another injury. He's uh, he's the next guy up. So if Kim gets hurt, if Cronenworth gets hurt, something like that, and they need an infielder, then I think he'd be the next guy to come up. Um, I mean, he held his own. Yeah. He's held his own pretty darn well. He got a couple of hits. He you know, good base runner and all that. I think he filled his role well. It's just, what are you really going to put on a guy who I'm checking his age? He's 21 now. Yeah. <laughs> and before we move on, speaking of another 21-year-old, friend of the podcast made his major league debut yesterday. Luis, uh, Luis Patino made his start no, he, with the Tampa Bay Well, he made, he made his debut for the Rays, yes. Right, right. Right. Yeah, so happy for Luis that he's he's back in the majors. So now I'm keeping my eye down in the minors, waiting to see where Blake Hunt gets assigned and and when the uh, when the time arrives for him to get that call. And he did really well. A little bit, you know, every time he threw the slider, it got better. Uh, he had two and two thirds of an inning and had two strikeouts, I believe. No one got any really solid contact on him. the The Tampa Bay Devil Ray broadcasters were just were louding him uh, on how good he is and how much they expect of him. So I think he's going to be a fixture in that. And you know, once they get him stretched out a little bit in that rotation. I think it's important to note that he started the game. So yeah. I don't know what their long-term plans are for him, but you know he's he's coming as as a starter, not a reliever, which he was for the Padres for the most part last year. Absolutely. And then, God, let's just finish it up with, with Ryan Weathers. Like how the Weathers report, baby, he is just continuing to amaze. Unreal. The guy has ice water in his veins. I to see him go into Dodger Stadium, stand on that mound, and just freaking shove against the most powerful <laughs> offense in the game. I mean, the kid doesn't care. He knows that he's just going to go up there and mow guys down. And all right, go ahead, try to hit it. See what happens. You know, he's only hitting ninety four, ninety five, but it's the off speed and the and the and the changeup and the curveball that he's throwing that's keeping those hitters honest. Right, and he's keeping the fastball off the middle of the plate too. Everything's been inside outside. He's hitting corners. Yeah, which is just awesome. Just so awesome to see. So he went long in his last start. And people noted that his velocity did drop off that last inning, but I think that's just fatigue that he hadn't pitched. I mean, I think he got to 90 pitches in that last game. Yeah. So he's pretty much stretched out to a, stre- a starter's workload. I think he's in the rotation for the foreseeable future. Yeah. What do you think? With, with Lamette, you know, on the 10 day, we'll see what happens in his next start. If they want to keep, you know, Lamette kind of just in that slow progression again, he might stick. He might definitely mm-hmm. stick. And if, and it, 
you know, Chris Paddock looked good for those first two innings. I mean, he looked really good. And then that third, I think it was the fourth inning, I think, where he just imploded and allowed five runs to score. If that continues, you have to look at him going to the bullpen. You have to. Right. Either the bullpen or maybe to the alternate site. Because there's, I don't know what it is. He has a hard time controlling the damage right now. That something happens, there's a a loud hit, there's an error, something weird. And then next thing you know, the inning's blowing up. And people have called out the Andrew Kashner comparison. And I, I, I cringe at it, but then... I mean, he had that, that he had the electric, he had the electric stuff and he could, he could mow guys down when he was on, but then he would have that one inning where something weird would happen and it would get out of control. You know, and what happened to Andrew Kashner? You know, Oliver Perez is still in the game. God, I saw him pitch this weekend too. Right. Same as my dad, man. Yeah, but Kashner kind of bounced around. He's, I I think he's still looking for work. I don't think he's on a roster right now. I mean, he's he's had a, he's good had a good long career, uh, but I mean, Chris Paddock is still young. He still has a chance to work his way through this, and this is not an uncommon thing for young pitchers in the league, especially now that the league has a book on him. So they know you can sit on a first-pitch fastball. Okay, well, you can't just groove a fastball down the middle or they're going to jump on it. I, I, I still want to believe in the guy, but at some point he's going to get passed up if he doesn't pick it up. If yeah. Lamette was healthy right now, I don't think he'd be in the rotation. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on. So that the Friday game was the 12 inning God marathon game. And Jason Stark had some great tidbits from his wild and weird uh, article from the athletics. So this is from Jason Stark from the athletic. I'll grant you that the Padres second baseman may not be a typical position player heading for the mound in extra innings. Since the Rays once groomed him as a two way player in the minors, nevertheless for the final out of the 12th inning, the second baseman pumped an 89 mile an hour fastball past Mookie Betts for a strikeout. I'm guessing he'll never let Mookie Betts forget. Mookie, incidentally, through Wednesday, had whipped only five times all season against real pitchers. So this uh, real a, pitchers. Yeah, right. <laughs> so this was a cool feat by Jake Cronenworth, had more in his bag of tricks. Two days after striking out an MVP, he homered off a Cy Young winner, Trevor Bauer, and that caused loyal reader, tweeter, Charles Smith to pose this fun question. Who has ever done that before? I think that was the question. Cronenworth is the first position player in history of those two awards to strike out an MVP and homer off a Cy Young in the same series. Many pitchers have done that, of course, but the last pitcher to homer off a former Cy Young winner and strike out a former position player MVP in the same series was that sweet-swinging Travis Wood, who did it on July 28, 2013 as a Cub. He homered off Tim Lincecum, struck out Buster Posey. So why is this a candidate for the weirdest and wildest moment of 2021? Oh, only because, according to BaseballReference.com's fabulous stat head tool, only one other relief pitcher in the entire expansion era, all 60 years of it, had ever hit a sacrifice fly in the 12th inning or later. Mike Scott did it for the Astros in the 13th on June 4th, 1989. Special citation, our friend Jim Cat hit one in the 13th as the starting pitcher May 20th, 1969. But this one was hit by a guy, Price, who zero previous sack flies and only previous career RBI in 13 seasons and 15 career plate appearances. That happened to David Price. Off. Yeah, so I was at the game, the 12-inning game, yeah. And we're sitting up there in the upper deck, and I'm watching everybody come in, and I'm like, wait, why is Cronenworth going to get another glove? Where's – wait, is that Joe Musgrove jogging, jogging onto the field? And I 
it, it was you know, at that point I was so fatigued from such a long, exciting game that was on the edge and it kind of got out of control and it's like, you know what? Screw it. Let's have some fun. <laughs> but then the fact that he came back and, and hit a home run off a Cy Young award winner. I mean, that's, that's a, that, that makes it pretty special. Nice. And Travis Wood, you know, Travis Wood could hit a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He had, he had a little bit of a stick. Uh, God, where is he today? I remember him playing left field at some point for the Cubs because they would do the thing where he'd come in and face a guy and then Madden would send him out to left field and he'd he'd play a, an at bat or two out there and then he'd come back in and pitch again against the, the, the next guy. Okay, meanwhile, before Musgrove, no pitcher had recorded a put out at any other position after throwing a no-hitter that season, according to stats, since Johnny Lush did it for the 1906 Phillies. The Phillies then wouldn't throw another no-hitter for 58 years, establishing the longest no-hit drought in history. And those, and whose no-hitter ended the second longest drought in history? Yep, Joe Musgrove's. But also, huh, this, how about this, that? This was the first time in history of reliable play-by-play data that any pitcher had hit a ball that was caught by another pitcher playing a different position with a position player pitching, which honestly should never happen, especially one of those great games of the year, except it's, you know. Oh, my gosh. Actually, and that, that was just the series here in San Diego. Yeah. I want to see his article about this last series, these four <laughs> games, because I'm sure there's a whole bunch. Of, I mean, obviously, Tatis hitting hitting two home runs on back-to-back nights against former Cy Young Award winners right there. I'm sure that's going to make a whole paragraph for him. But I mean, what just an exciting that, – that double play that they turned. Yeah. Holy cow. Hard hit ball. Cronenworth knocks it down. Perfect flip to Tatis. Tatis slides across the bag. He avoids Pollock sliding in hard. Throws an absolute seed while his body's turning the wrong way. And then Hosmer made it, to Hosmer's credit, I haven't been a fan of his defense, but he made a, a pretty good snag on that to, to complete the double play. Dude, that ball bounced twice off Cronenworth. Not only did it, I mean, it hit him, turns him around, bounces twice, then he just flips it like, okay, I can at least get the lead runner. And right. Then, like you said, Taddy just throws a seed. Yeah, and his body, was, his body was turning to his right. So it's like, it's not like he was turning into the throw. He was turning away from it. That was just all upper body force. And he still threw the thing what, 89 miles an yeah, hour, something like that? Hour. Yeah. That's crazy. Insane. So what an arm. It's good to be above 500. It's good to beat the Dodgers. Um, we have, we're It's weak- great to beat the Dodgers. Yeah. We're just don't, about- don't tell me it's good to beat the Dodgers. It's great. It's Everybody great around baseball is talking about how let's watch those two teams go at it all year. Screw the rest of baseball. Let's just watch them. And, and we get to have a front row seat for it. Hell yeah, we do. So we are a week away from the opening of minor league baseball, May 4th. Tuesday, May 4th, is when the minor league baseball season starts. So by the time the next time we podcast, we will have minor league information, minor league numbers. We will have minor league games to talk about, finally. Oh, my gosh. Minor league rosters. We haven't been able to talk about who's on what team for so long. Right. And <laughs> I mean, we have the roster, but it's just, it's all the, you know, it's everyone's name and, and number pitched together. So I noticed one interesting thing on there. Tyler Malone, friend of the podcast, yep. he was drafted as, I believe, a third baseman, outfielder, kind of utility guy. He's listed on the the spring training roster as a catcher. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So Blake Hunt. We we've lost we lost the, you know one of our one of our minor league catchers. Yeah, that's kind of one of the things that I that I missed about not being able to go to spring training is 
you go out there and you just see who's doing drills with what groups. You're like, oh, that's interesting that Hudson Potts is taking taking drills with the middle infield guys. I don't know that he's played second base before. Right. And then you find out that he's taking sec- he's playing some second base. Yeah, it's yeah. those little things you seem to pick up. And so right now, I don't believe even reporters are allowed on site at the alternate site. So we don't have like Eric Longenhagen sending out you know, video Sanders, clips of who's doing what. The Mad Friars yeah, guys. Yeah, Kyle one. Glazer. Yeah, all the Mad Friars folks. They're usually putting out their weekly report of what they're seeing. And we're missing out on that. But as soon as camp breaks, then we're finally going to be able to get some minor league content. Yeah, it would be very nice. And we're very excited for that. But let us send you off to an interview with Senior Vice President and General Manager Brad Taylor of the El Paso Chihuahuas. Well, hey, we're here with Senior Vice President and General Manager Brad Taylor of the El Paso Chihuahuas. Royal is going to join us here in a minute. Uh, Brad, how are you doing? Great. How are you? Fantastic. How um, God, how have you been doing through the pandemic? You know, um, busy, uh, like, like um, a lot of people, also thankful, careful, um, uh, probably impatient. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's funny. We rewind all the way back to, gosh, March of 2020. And as an organization, we made a decision that we weren't just going to sit still. Um, we wanted to keep our, you know, pace and momentum and our purpose and we stayed in great contact with all of our corporate partners, our suite holders, our season seat members, our group leaders. And it wasn't even in the interest of trying to sell them anything as much as it was just cultivating a relationship to say, hey, we're here. We're not sure when we're going to be back. But when we are back, we hope you're back with us. And I think that paid off because we were really poised to have a great season. The, the other thing we did by not sitting still, our ownership group is phenomenal and they made a commitment to keep all of us on staff and whole through this whole thing. Oh, that's incredible. And it is incredible, especially if you know anything about the minor league industry as you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but our thank you to them was to rally our staff together. And even after working, you know, our 40 hour week, even though it was from home or on zoom meetings and through sale calls on cell phones, we still did, uh, I think 1,600 volunteer hours as a staff to serve our local community because our owners are so invested in doing things for this this town and this area. And we thought one of the ways we can show them we appreciate what they did for us was to do for others. So um, I think all of that has us poised to uh, have a great 2021, which thankfully will kick off here in the next three weeks. Absolutely. You know, and, and you guys have been, and we've actually talked about this on the podcast, you're you're pretty deep rooted in the El Paso community. Uh, one of the things that we reported on was the, uh, the like the, the dentist, uh, it's kind of like, I don't know, does not convention, but you have all these dentists come in and you bring in the lower income families and you give them free dental. Oh, money. And it was a few yeah. years back we talked about that, but I was just amazed on the numbers that you guys put out with how many, you know, how much dental work got done, how much was paid for, how much they didn't have to pay. Yeah, it's it's kind of, you know, these dentists are just awesome to give their time and services for free to people that may not be able to afford it, that may not have dental insurance. And the ballpark becomes the platform or the community center, if you will, where it takes place. 
and we line up the concourse with dental chairs and hygienists and it's really something to see, but it's just another way that we can give back uh, to our community. And, you know, the, the mission of our ownership group from the beginning was to impact the quality of life and to provide economic impact and to help things grow around us. And certainly, you know, this ballpark has 72 home baseball games every year, but we want it to be bigger and more than that. Absolutely. So what else have you done uh, besides we'll get to the pandemic here in a minute, but what else have you done in, in the community uh, throughout the years? So throughout, since we've been here, we, we've helped work with the border youth athletic association to promote baseball and softball, both boys and girls. Uh, one of the things we feel like is a responsibility for us is to help grow the game, to make sure that there's ability for uh, everyone to participate uh, the Padres have even been integral in helping that specific group with donations and other things. But I mean, man, you know, we, we go from everything from sporting events to mentoring and education opportunities where kids can come in and shadow people on our staff and learn something about the sports business world. Uh, but to also just volunteering by literally, uh, you know, one day we sorted out, I think, 17,000 pounds of food at the at the food bank because that was the way we could help that weekend. And we have a culture here with our with the people in our office that is one of giving and participation. And it's really nice that I don't have to chase people down to go do this. They want to do it. They create events on their own. And uh, it honestly helps make our, our city better. Yeah. As a food service operator myself for 25 years, I uh, it, a part of my life ethic is to be of service. When, it, when, when you work as being of service, it's not a job. I love doing what I do. I love service. Absolutely. People. And, you know, I work on a college campus, so I get a lot of blank stares at, at, at customers. But, you know, hey, there's Roy. Um, but just being of service in, in that industry and feeding people and making people happy is, uh, is a, has been a joy in my life. So I'm glad to hear that from, you know, from the ownership all the way down to the organization there. So El Paso has had baseball in the past. And in various forms, and they all kind of sputtered out. And you guys, every time I watch an El Paso game, it's packed, except for the day games, you know, with blazing hot. But it's just you, it seems to be so successful there. What makes you guys so different than uh, than some of maybe the other um, other organizations that came through there? Well, I think we embrace the the past here in El Paso. You know, we we pay tribute to the Sun Kings. Uh, the, the, the El Paso Dodgers, the Diablos. Diablo. And it's important that we, we look back on all these years of history and think about how can we build on that, but then put our own swirl on it to make it, you know, look better, feel better. And, and frankly, we're lucky. We have an unbelievable facility with all the modern amenities and bells and whistles that we can host, you know, high-end corporate events. We got a big video board. We got great technology. But I think our commitment was we want to throw a party 72 nights a year <laughs> and you're going to leave here and you're going to go tell your friends that they missed something by not being here. Yeah. Real quick. Have you and guys we've had literally, no, no, we literally treat every event like it should stand on its own merit and we don't want it to be a repeat from one night to the next. So if you come a couple nights in a row, it's not the same experience. And frankly, we just work hard and, and we enjoy it. And, you know, if we're not having fun, how can we expect our guests to have fun? So have you had a Kurt Russell bobblehead night? Because I understand that he was uh, in the minor league system. I was at the Yeah, Eagles. he was here. He was here a long time ago in the 70s and he was quite a player. 
Uh, we have not had a bobblehead. That is something we might look at down the road. But, um, you know, there's some cool pictures of him in that iconic solid red uni with the black and white El Paso across the chest. And, again, it's it's something that people know about El Paso, and it's another reason to talk about baseball here. Yeah. So let's go. Let's talk about you for a minute. You've been with the organization for for a real long time, and you helped actually design the ballpark. Well, I don't want to get too much credit for that, but yeah, I was I was hired at the onset to be the first general manager, and fortunately, I got in when uh, they were still in the phases of finishing what this ballpark could look like, how it would function, and in my prior gig to come in here, I was in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and I was hired to do the same thing. We built a new downtown ballpark created a new franchise. And I thought, man, if I am ever stupid and crazy enough to do this a second time, I'm going to keep some notes about what I would do different and what I would do more of. And I had a chance to do that here in El Paso, working with Alan Ledford, our president. And, you know, as we talked and our philosophies meshed, we thought about hospitality areas. So we got to reconfigure what those are going to look like, suites, this is a really unique ballpark. A lot of ballparks in the minor leagues are one or two levels tops. Yeah. We're four levels here. Yeah. We're on five point, like four acres, man. We're a small plot when you really consider it. So we're more vertical than we are horizontal, but that is what gives this place all of its character. You know, we have a building so, in right field. That's the big dog house yeah, that has four levels. House. Yeah. And on the top of that is the woof top, which is kind of like a spring training style, outdoor patio furniture, mini golf, ping pong, TV, bar, food buffet experience. The next level down is the uh, Sun King Saloon. So that pays tribute to all the past El Paso baseball history. And then the second level is the City Hall Grill. And it, we call it that because this is where City Hall used to be. Really? You know, El Paso, yeah, El Paso blew up City Hall to build this ballpark. <laughs> so you better make it a party, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it provides some unique opportunities to uh, this really awesome facility. So here in San Diego, we've gotten to see uh, what a ballpark can do to revitalize a part of downtown that might have been a little bit run down. Uh, I've had the opportunity to come to El Paso a couple times and I've seen all the brand new hotels and stuff around there. Um, can you speak to what the ballpark has done to help that part of downtown come alive? Yeah. La last figure I heard was over $350 million of new development downtown yeah. since the ballpark got here. That's significant. That's real. And, and jobs that have been provided, but yeah. And, and now one of those hotels is our host hotel. Visiting teams can now walk right across the street, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, which, which is huge. There's new restaurants. And, and the whole experience about being able to come downtown at maybe 4 o'clock and park, go have a beer, grab a little light something to eat, come enjoy a game for three hours, maybe have a post-game nightcap and a snack, go home. It, it really works the way you draw it up, and you can point – other cities can point to this and go, this is how it's supposed to be done and how it can be effective. Yeah, we came, we stayed in the double tree that's right across the street, like kitty corner. And you could look from our room. We were looking down into the ballpark. We could see the players out there stretching out before the game. It was really cool. So you were part of the organization when the name was coming into shape, oh, yeah. right? How oh. is that whole, we talked to the guys at, uh, at Brandios about that, uh, but I'd like to get your side of the story. Yeah, well, one of the helpful things is I had worked with Jason and Casey in the past when we named the Hot Rods and Bowling Green. Oh, Hot Rods, yeah. And 
while I love that name and that look, what we should have been there was the Bowling Green Cave Shrimp. And I was the one guy standing on an island with uh, Jason and Casey trying to pitch that to our owners like Cave Shrimp. Nobody's Cave Shrimp. But we went with the safe but still good nickname, Hot Rods. And that was ultimately landed on because there's a raceway there, Beach Bend, and Corvettes are made yeah. in Bowling Green. But when we got here, we thought, you know what? We don't want to be cookie cutter. We don't want to be vanilla. We want to merchandise. One of the things I believed in over my 27 years in this business is we look at merchandising like a get-to, not a have-to. So when it's a get-to, you come up with some cool stuff, and you come up with stuff for women, for kids, and for men. And frankly, men are easy, right? If you can get women and kids into gear and apparel that they like, and there's a depth and a selection, you'll do well. So, you know, how did we land on Chihuahuas? Well, Jason and Casey do what they do. They're terrific at it. They come in, they research, they talk to people. What makes this place tick? What makes it unique? What's fun? And, you know, some of the common things that they heard about El Paso was, we're not like the rest of Texas. And it's not. El Paso is a little more like Arizona and New Mexico than it is the other side of Texas. And it's got different features. It sits on a border. It's next to the Chihuahuan Desert. And, you know, they heard things like, hey, you know what El Paso is? We're feisty. We're loyal. And, of course, those guys start running. And guess what's coming around? It's Chihuahuas. <laughs> and I remember thinking, man, I'm glad I moved 1,800 miles away to ultimately end up with the team we're going to call the Chihuahuas. But it all came together when we saw the first artwork and the color machinations we went to. And we looked at it, and, and in my mind, I was 100% sold. Like, this is 100% a top five mark in minor league baseball, and it has been yeah. since we opened. Yeah, the little mark against the eye was kind of that whole feisty, the getting in a fight yep. attitude. Uh, we talked to those guys at the winter meetings a couple of years back, and they're like, when we came up with that, you know, we were doing our uh, the, the kind of preliminary stuff. We were getting death threats. People hated it. Oh, and they- listen. The first 24 hours, people wanted to run us out of town. And I, and I remember sitting there specifically with one of our owners, Paul Foster, and just saying this. They're emotionally invested in us. If it was quiet and you could hear crickets chirping, we would be dead. But because they're emotionally invested in us, they're going to give us a chance. And we have the wonderful opportunity right now to engage them, to prove how fun this brand is going to be, and that this, is a, this experience is going to be something like they've never had in El Paso. Now, we had to back it up, and I think we have, but it really provided an opportunity. And one of the comments somebody gave me two years ago, I'll never forget, and it really resonated with me, was I can't imagine El Paso without the Chihuahuas in it. Yeah. And that told me, man, we, we've made it into the fabric of their lives. Well, the ladies and the kids love Chico. The guys do too, but we talk about branding opportunities. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I remember having this thought like, man, if you can't like a cartoon dog, you're kind of soulless anyway, right? (laughs) I mean, like, let's not take this too seriously. You know, we're a minor league team. We're about fun. We're about family. And when you think about all the other things that come from being the Chihuahuas, it's why we can sell nachos in a dog bowl. It's why we can have the big dog house, right? So all these things are possible because we're just goofing around having fun and people embrace it. Yeah, now, we had, we had travel, some of those nachos. What's and that? So I have, I, we had some of those nachos. I have the dog bowl. That's what the dogs, that's the uh, water outside. The dogs still have that. Exactly. Uh, we also had some of the uh, the chapulines. 
Yeah, so that's the thing, man. You're you're how many miles away, and you're seeing the brand every single day because you took a dog bowl back home. Yeah, and and that's what we want. We like to be front and center with everybody, and they they think they look at that dog bowl and go, "That's pretty fun." <laughs> it's almost, it's almost better than a baseball cap, you know, a baseball helmet having a dog bowl. It's a lot more unique, right? And you you can use it as a dog bowl. So let's talk about the team. Let's God, you know, you guys just celebrated a championship a few years back with um, yeah, Hunter Renfro would have been our first wave of uh, of the minor league guys coming up with uh, Hunter Renfro, Swahe, Margo, Margo. That was a fun team. That was a you guys who you guys beat. That was a pretty incredible game, didn't he? Hit a grand who? Someone hit a grand slam to win the game. Was that was that Renfro? Well. That was in one of the other games, but we ultimately ended up beating the Oklahoma City Dodgers in their ballpark uh, to clinch it three games to one. But you know what's funny is that team, I think our final record was like 73 and 70. And we just got hot at the right time. We won the division. We got really hot at the end of August. And, man, we got in the playoffs and we were a buzzsaw. And everybody else was paper, man. We just we ran through it, and it was so much fun uh, to watch that group. Uh, and with Rod Barajas leading the way as our manager, um, that was a lot of fun to to win that. And then to go back the next year and take it to the final and fifth deciding game, literally to the bottom of the ninth here in El Paso, only to lose, yeah. uh, was just as gut gut wrenching. But you know, for for two years in a row, we made the championship, and over our six seasons. We've not finished below 500. We've won our division four out of six years. Um, I wish we could take credit for that, but that's the Padres, man. The Padres and this incredible system that they have and the scouting they do and the way they find to procure these players and develop them, that's why we've been so good. Well, the house must have been rocking for all those postseason games. Yeah, it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. you know, minor league baseball playoff games are not the easiest sale in the world because you can't plan on them. They happen near the very end, and school started. Yeah. And I remember our first playoff game here. We had like 8,000 people, and I had never worked a playoff game with that many people. And I worked in Trenton when the Thunder had the heyday Yankee prospects, Jabba Chamberlain, Phil Hughes, Ian Kennedy, <laughs> Austin Jackson, Brett Gardner. Like, that team was stacked. And I think 3,000 fans might have been the most we had at a home game. But, man, the way El Paso supports this is just amazing. And, you know, talking about the the coaching staff, you have Edwin Rodriguez there this year. Um, You have friend friend of the podcast, Doug Banks. Um, And down here is uh, the pitching coach, Eric Young. He was the uh, coordinator, pitching coordinator for a while for the Padres. Yeah, you know what's funny is like I got the privilege of working with uh, uh, Edwin in 2019. Then I don't get to see him. And I have literally yet not met the other coaches because, you know, they're bubbled in where they are in Peoria. We haven't been able to go out there. And every time that I've had the opportunity to engage, it's over email or cell phone. So, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting them, although it, very potentially might not be face to face for a while, you know. I'm, <laughs> yeah. So how? Uh, so how is um, you know, with with uh, cities and states opening up, uh, what is the season going to look like with um with the beginning of the season here? 
Yeah, so obviously being in Texas, Texas opened up pretty quick and was one of the first. And, uh, you know, one of the things the Rangers did when they went, we're going 100%, you know, we're now removed how many days from opening day for the big leagues? Probably three weeks. So nothing has been reported as a residual effect from them opening up. Nothing's been traced. That's So I think that's a good thing. We are, have landed at a place as an organization um, for baseball and, and through obviously working with Major League Baseball through the restructuring. We're going to be at about 70% capacity to open the season, and masks are required per MLB rules. But, man, you know, I think to be able to be at that number, to be outside, and hopefully this all gets better. And as of today, almost 60% of El Pasoans have either been fully vaccinated or they're one shot in. Yes. So you talk about a city that's leading the way that only makes it possible to open up quicker and further and uh, do it at a pace where maybe we can really enjoy this. Now, aside from that, we've also been working since last March, knowing this day was going to come around again at some point. So we've been very diligent about what COVID protocols are. We were amongst the first customers to go to all of our vendors and order all this hand sanitizer Make sure we were well prepared with masks um, to have for our staffs and everybody else. And we were able to pull off soccer events here last year. So we know we can operate this building safely. And, and, and since it's an outdoor venue and the CDC has now said, hey, look, it's not as likely as contact, surface contact right. to spread. We feel like if you're wearing a mask and you're outside and now 60 percent as of today are at least one shot in, if not vaccinated, what's that going to look like in a month? You know, hell a lot better. And we're going to have 100 percent of our front office vaccinated um, by the time we throw the first pitch, which is amazing. Uh, wow. Well, it's worth pointing out that El Paso got hit particularly hard by the outbreak. So I'd imagine that your community is taking this more seriously than, than some others might. Yeah, there was a stretch where, you know, there was a confluence of events, you know, again, sitting on a border, things being a little different in Mexico than they would be here from with regulations and rules and the spread. And this is a very familial area. There's a lot of people here that have family on both sides. You don't want to go without seeing your family. Right. Um, But the good thing is this town has bounced back. Um, It's in my opinion, leading the way with being safe and smart. Now, if I was to leave here and go to Walmart, I would probably see 99 out of a hundred people still wearing a mask inside. That's fantastic. And, And most businesses are like that here. And I think people wanted to be respectful uh, and, and get this out of our lives sooner than later. You know, you, you mentioned Walmart, and I just wanted to to mention that, uh, you know, our hearts go out to the community after what happened. Yeah, that was, uh, man, that was a really tough day, uh, obviously. And our team, I'll never forget, was on the road. And what happened here was just one of the most horrific, evil, awful things. And to, to have our team help play a role in rebounding from that, to have a memorial service here, you know, days or weeks later and to be again, it'd be a gathering place for families and, and friends. Uh, that was our right to do that and our privilege and we're obligated to do that. But, um, you know, even, even El Paso has decided we're, we're not going to let that keep us down. We don't want to be known for that. And, um, people keep moving forward to help each other. This is one of the most giving communities I've ever lived in and protective of each other. So, that's fantastic. You know, we've talked. We we've had the opportunity to speak with some of the other you know, organizations, and one of the common threads that we've we keep coming back to is how 
the baseball, the ballpark winds up becoming a hub for the community. The people really look to the team and the organization, you know, as a, as a place to gather. Um, and so it's, it's wonderful to hear that even though you had to deal with such a tragic event in the community, your facility is where you were able to host that yeah, event. I mean, isn't it the least we can do for the people that come here and let us entertain them and help our business work and go around and keep us employed? Like that, hell yeah, that's the easiest thing we can do for sure. Hey, so I got to ask about this. So Ty France, although he's no longer with the Padres, God, he was one hit away from hitting 400, which I don't think has been done for forever in minor league baseball for as many as, as that bats as he's had. You know, it's funny, man. When you watch Big Fly Ty here in AAA, it was like watching the best kid on the high school field or the little league field. It was like, yeah, that dude's just different than a lot of the other dudes. And it, he can hit fastballs up, down. He could hit break and it just didn't matter. And when you hit the bat, it had a different sound. There's a couple guys that that, that has resonated with me over the years, and, and it's Franchi, Hunter Renfro, and Ty, um, and Ryan Schimpf, uh, and then Cody Decker. Cody Decker hit some in the first year too, but just a different barrel sound. And, and I'm, I love watching Ty have success right now, man. Absolutely. And a lot of these guys, you know, even though they're wearing different uniforms, we're forever fans because we've had so many good guys come through here. I mean, like good human beings. Like, it's fun to root for them. It's easy to root for them. And uh, Ty's one of those guys, man. And and I'll tell you what, you know, that guy could be – he could have a good career for a while. Absolutely. He's having a time up there in, in Seattle. And the same thing with us, with with our podcasts as we've had for just about – going on four years now – they traded a lot of those guys away. And when they get traded away, we're like, great, we have a friend in Cleveland. Oh, we have someone in the Rays organization where we can watch and watch these guys grow in the game. You know, we're just a, yep. we're, just a we're just a step on the way to their real careers, which hopefully will be in the major leagues. Yeah, no doubt. And look, this is just the pathway, you know, like it's not a lock and, and it's like yes or no. Like if it doesn't happen for the Padres, it doesn't happen at all. These guys can get somewhere else, which is great. And, and what's that done for the Padres? Well, it's allowed the big league club to become stronger. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, when that big league club is deeper and better, guess who else is going to be deeper and better? The AAA team is probably going to be deeper and better. So it's amazing the job they've done to not only um, cultivate the talent, but to, to keep a lot of it. Yeah. There's still so many guys that aren't even here yet. Yeah, absolutely. The now pipeline's you mentioned, full. You mentioned another friend of the podcast – uh, Cody Decker, uh, and I understand he's maintained a relationship with El Paso. I believe he has a oh. home there. He's involved with a with a community outreach um, organization. Is he? Does he work with the Chihuahuas at all? So I saw Cody last week. We ended up at the same high school game together and sat next to one another because he's helping some of the kids I used to coach as a youth league coach. And I went to check in on my my guys. And Cody and I talk frequently. And uh, the, the reference, uh, the the group I referenced earlier, the Border Youth Athletic Association, the base, they do baseball for boys, girls, softball, and instruction, and that has evolved into, frankly, some very good high school players becoming college players. Some of the college players they have in becoming pro players. Um, you know, Daryl Arnais has worked out there. The Orioles drafted him in the second round last year, and um, yeah, Cody's active. In El Paso, he still kind of bounces between here and Southern California 
but he's here all the time, uh, instructing, helping, cultivating, developing, and, you know, helping to build the game uh, continually here in this town. It was funny when we had him here the first season in 2014, I think he fell in love with El Paso pretty quick and, and El Paso with him. Uh, He's been one of our best brand ambassadors and, uh, he, he's a good dude, man. And, and you know, I, I do. I stay in touch with him, talk to him frequently. You know, I remember the conversation well, we had real quick, Roy, it was um, since El Paso has been there and since the base has been there, like baseball wasn't really a big sport in El Paso until the Chihuahuas got there. Then the kids got involved and you guys got involved think, in the community. In- I think the Chihuahuas helped take baseball a notch up. I think it's always been a really good baseball town. If you look at the history it just didn't have the opportunity to get on a bigger stage until we got here as a triple A team with a better facility than they'd ever seen. But, you know, you go back to like Bowie high school, man, they won the Texas state championship back in, I think 1949. And the story behind that team is remarkable with a bunch of kids who spoke Spanish and English and the way they were treated away from El Paso and the way they made a run and won the whole thing. Right. And that inspired people, I think, to be in the game. But now there's different opportunities. There's better facilities. There's places to train. My kids were five and eight when we moved here. They're now 13 and 16. (laughs) Just from what I've seen in the number of participants in youth baseball has grown quite a bit since we've been here. And if, if, if we can take any credit for that, awesome. We want to help perpetuate being active for boys and girls, baseball, softball, or, or frankly, anything that we can. And um, there's a lot of players here. I think you're going to start hearing more from on the college and, and pro scene. It's There's some legit baseball players here. Now you got me wondering. I'm trying to think back. There was a player that the Padres had in the minor league organization, uh, Joe Galindo, I believe his name was. The yeah, came Joey from Galindo. El Paso, is that right? Yeah, he went to New Mexico State and uh, got drafted by the Padres. Uh, I think he was ultimately released maybe a year or two ago. But, yeah, Joey used to come here in the offseason and throw bullpens right here in a ballpark. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and that's, was you know, a, that's uh, another thing. Like, if we got a local guy that needs a place, come on. That's so rad. There was an exhibition game between the Padres and the Chihuahuas at, at the end of spring training. And my wife and I came out and we attended that game and Joe Galindo got to pitch in that game. And I'm sure for him, that was one of the thrills of his oh. life being able to be in front of his city. I can only imagine. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he got to do it in a Padres uniform, which probably made it even cooler <laughs> to all the people here. <laughs> hey, well, a couple more, we'll let you go. And uh, we really appreciate the time, Brad. Uh, so sure. Uh, Tenure, a new ten-year partnership with uh, with MLB and the Padres. Um, has there had to be any changes with the facility with the new partnership? Thank God for us, we we were built compliant uh, and forward thinking. And you know, this evolution with MLB kind of restructuring the minors was frankly to get those that were behind up to kind of where we we're fortunate to be. Um, you know, they want the, the, the health and wellness of the players and the places they work to evolve it. And that's, that's fair, yeah. you know, but we, we've been compliant since we opened and we are still compliant. In fact, probably overly compliant. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a big league facility just with 7,100 seats, you know, um, and to be able to be with the Padres for another 10 years, 
we both would have signed up for that without anybody telling us. It's been a wonderful partnership. They've been great to us. Um, I think they like being here. We love them being here. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, when I get to go on the road and see my affiliate major league team play, it's pretty cool to be in San Diego. (laughs) So pretty good perks there too. Absolutely. Well, hey, we really appreciate you taking the time, Brad. Um, it's been a long Absolutely. time. We've had the podcast for a while. We just we never got a chance to really connect with you guys, and we really hope this is the beginning of a you know of a small relationship that we can build on. No, and, uh, thanks. You know, and and you know, I don't know if you guys have talked to Tim Haggerty before, our, our broadcaster, but Tim has seen and called every inning of every Chihuahuas game there's ever been, and uh, he man, he knows more deeply than anybody probably the the the, the path, the players, the results. So he, he's a good good link here if you ever need it. I'm happy to come back and talk. And, you know, the Padres as an organization got a pretty cool set of affiliates, man. I mean, Mike Nutter does an unreal job in Fort Wayne. Uh, you know, Burl and Gas are back again yeah. in San Antonio. Yeah. So it, it's cool to be, to be part of that deal. And uh, obviously Lake Elsinore. So, you know, they got a pretty good set of uh, minor league teams to call their own. Well, I got a I got a question before we break off. Uh, for the folks that come out to to El Paso to visit, can you recommend a couple places to eat? Oh, a hundred percent, man. Um, one place that is a staple, and you got to go is L and J Cafe. It's a little old Mexican place next to a graveyard, but it is unbelievable food, and it's the community center. You'll go in there and find doctors, bankers, teachers, uh, coaches, whoever, right? And then more recently downtown here, there are some great restaurants that have opened up. Ambar has been open for maybe a year. It's a wood-fired Mexican grill place. Like the smell alone ah. brings you right in. Ants and Eleven Steakhouse downtown. Um, but, yeah, we all have our favorite little uh, hole in the walls. I went to one today, H&H Car Wash, Mexican food, and it's just unbelievable, man. You walk in, it's 150 years old at least. But, man, the food there is unbeatable. And I walked out of there. I think I spent $9.80 today. <laughs> and there's an actual, is there an actual car wash there so you can get your car washed while you're having your lunch? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yep. That's so rad. I love it. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we'll certainly reach out to you and Tim uh, later on in the season or maybe after the season. Awesome. Well, hopefully if you can visit, uh, don't be afraid to reach out and say hello. Certainly will. Thanks, right, guys. Thank you. Have a good one. From out of nowhere, Felina has found me Kissing my cheek as she kneels by my side Trading my true love in the arms that I'll die for Little kiss and Felina Good